Welcome to the Social Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. This series looks through the lens of those striving for a better world. I'm Pam Mungru. Born and raised in Mexico, Dr. Monica Moreno-Figueroa is a senior lecturer in sociology at the University of Cambridge. She is also the Fellow of Social Sciences at Downing College. Monica is passionate about social justice, and it is that passion which has led her to develop projects that aim to make racism public as a strategy for its elimination. This podcast was recorded late last year. I began by asking Monica why she decided to become one of the university's race equality champions. Well, I've been doing this for a couple of years now, and I started because I first tried to do... I was thinking about institutional change in the university, and I started doing small efforts within the college and in my department where I would try to sit down and talk more experientially about racism and how we are living through it in, in our everyday, in our you know teachings, in the classroom, and facing a lot of students' issues about how they were being treated and how, what they felt in their everyday. And then this opportunity came and I thought it was better to try to tackle it in a much bigger institutional way than my smaller efforts in the department or in the college. And that's how I started doing that work. And what does it mean to me? It means, well, an opportunity to understand more the institutional constraints. What do we mean when we think about working with an organization with so many different peoples and all their agendas and everything? So I think I have a better understanding. It also means that I also see what are the weaknesses and the possibilities. And it has taught me, you know, like uh, what battles to fight, what um, longer term goals I can see and where I definitely prefer to go back to working in the department and in the college and do my own efforts, you see. So it, was, it, it is an opportunity to see the possibilities, really. Are the possibilities more positive than perhaps we're led to believe? Well, it's a mixed bag, I think. What I found is amazingly good people at all levels of the institution that are really willing to do things and change. I found, yeah, some institutional constraints that are difficult for me to understand and I think that are not communicated clearly to me or to anybody else, you know, like flows of power and flows of money and flows of resources and things that are a bit complicated, say, much more complex than what we think. And at the same time, during these years, I've seen a lot of change happening. And I think it has actually changed my idea of what change is, you see? So when we think of change, what is it that we imagine? And who is it that we imagine is going to do that, right? What are the understandings of that? So during this process, I've seen there's a lot of people willing to think about it to open their minds there are lots of thinking understanding the constraints but there are also lots of possibilities that we have seen moving on there have been a variety of processes that have been unleashed now right 
that have been accompanied by student mobilization and a particular moment where people are talking about decolonization of the curriculum and decolonization of higher education. So I think I've entered to do this work at a time where many things have been in favor of moving that agenda. So we now have a rise in more you know, people of color coming into the university. At the same time, we have a rise on people talking about their experiences of racism. So the change is not that it suddenly has disappeared. Although my goal, my absolute goal is to elim eliminate racism. That's like what I'm interested in, not just a little adaptation or a little change about it. But towards that goal, what I see is like we are moving, you know, we are moving. You've mentioned there that your absolute goal is to eliminate racism. Before I ask you if that can ever happen, mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you, what are your own experiences that have led you to this? Well, I believe it's going to happen. I mean, I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't do it if I don't think it's possible. I'm not saying when or how exactly, <laughs> but I'm working on it with other people, not just me. Uh, why is it relevant? Well, I've, I've slowly have become more and more angered, I guess, by the unfairness and injustice of what racism represents, to be representative of, you know, that. And that has been very difficult in my life, you know, like, well, I've, I come from a, a context where racism was, has been denied for a very long time, where there is an um, anti-black racism that is really strong, and being mixed race and looking black, you know, and this I'm making like um, inverted commas around that, has made me, has pushed me to be in a situation where I've had to face things that are not very nice, you know. And I've slowly understood that it's not my fault, that it's not about me, that it's a social issue, that it is a group issue. And, yeah, I just find it unbearable to see how we keep using these completely false ideas about human people humans and people, these false beliefs about our differences to um, stop opportunities, you know, stop the development of us as, as people and to collaborate and to do things together and to grow as, I mean, we are so distracted by racism. That's what infuriates me. It even infuriates me that I have to do it as my, my research topic, you know, or as my, uh, my, political activism because it takes so much energy and so much of our effort, you know, in the sense that we could be doing so much more, you know, with our with humans. You know, there's so many other problems. But racism, sexism, classism are these distractors from us growing, you know, in a way, and, and just being humans. You talked about identity and talked about having to almost live an identity that's being foisted upon you. Yeah. What is that identity? Well, being a black woman. Huh? <laughs> it's like I'm seen as a black woman and I'm asked to perform 
and do all this work as a black woman. And I try to resist it as much as I can in in the sense that I feel like identities are very limiting of what we are and what we can do and what we can think and, you know. I feel like I don't have a lot of choices. You know, I don't have a choice not to be a black woman. I mean, I'm I'm building towards having pride of being a black woman and doing all that, you see. Like, nobody should be forced to be anything in particular, you know, a lesbian, a woman. We only are these identities because there is an unfairness or there is a lack of opportunity. There is an injustice that makes us get together as black people, as gay people, as whatever, to demand fair treatment, you know, to demand the equal access of opportunities or to demand access to a good life. So if my take is that we are only leaving these identities because we have to fight for something. If not, it wouldn't really matter. You know, it's a fact. It's just a fact that I have a certain skin tone or that I have a certain hair or that I have sex, certain sex organs, sexual, you know, it's a fact. Why there's so much investment in that and why such a distractor from us having a good life, that's kind of my question. And I think that's important to say that I'm not talking about racism because poor me. No poor me. I'm talking about all the... I mean, thousands and thousands and millions of people that we need to be responsible of, that we need to be thinking about, that we need to work with, that, you know, we we need to be destroying these structures of dispossession and exploitation that kill people, you know, that kill us and kill the world, you know, our and our environment. So it's like it's a really horrible time to be in where we are just facing at, you know, there are social eruptions all over the world that have to do with basic injustices and like inequality, right? And inequality is marked by race and it's marked by class and it's marked by gender to start with. And you can add age and youth, you know, young and older people and you can abilities and disabilities. I mean, you name it. Inequality is the way that our society seems to be functioning. And we should just all be willing to give up some of our privileges or all of them to have a better society for everyone. No, I don't know if I'm going to sound too (laughs) revolutionary, but I'm just like, what are we doing? You know, What, what, what does it take? I just wonder. You've hinted at the fact that you you don't necessarily have the answer, but you are working on certain projects to to try and make those changes, to try and facilitate some form of movement, Mm. forward momentum. What are the projects then that you're working on? Well, I mean, I have projects at different levels. Some research projects where I'm trying to think about, um, particularly the latest one is on anti-racism. So activism and academia and different organizations and social movements is like what what we want to map in Latin America, what are people's nations, governments, activists doing 
and what works what works better what is not so efficient or so productive of critical change and so i'm interested in understanding more how do we do change what is possible what is difficult and what are the obstacles to do that so i think that's a really important we're doing it in four latin american countries in um, brazil ecuador colombia and mexico and looking at legal cases social movements ngos activists and the governmental initiatives and policies affirmative action you know so it's a variety of of projects there there is an author called Sarah Ahmed who you know is a very important feminist author and and she has described institutional racism as a way of doing rather than a failure with this she means that and I, and I've also kind of developed that in my own work that is not that the institution doesn't do the things because they miss them or because it was a mistake, you know. They do the things in a particular way because that is how the institution is organized to do things and therefore give less access and less better service to certain people. So are you saying then it is a deliberate act? Yes, yes. So say, for example, I analyze the case of indigenous peoples and the health services in Mexico, whereby they just don't get the correct service. They get doctors that don't want to go and work in indigenous communities and they are forced to go there. They are maybe not the more qualified doctors to work with the less good equipment, say. And they are, you know, in hospitals where there's only one supervisor one doctor that is already capable and then they go and do an operation and they leave someone without any more consciousness or without being able to move their legs anymore and who is to be at fault you know it's a system that doesn't care and is willing to use indigenous peoples to try and test out students abilities you know so Students go there to practice medicine in conditions that are really limited instead of the the government, say, or whoever decides the system to send the best people for the more marginal communities. Does that make sense? So you end up that decision that someone at some point took or that a whole system and generations of how doctors are distributed or medical students are distributed throughout the country and I think that happens similarly in the UK ends up affecting people of color because of the quality and the service they receive so who is to blame the doctor that didn't know how to do an operation or a whole system that has placed a person that is not as qualified is unsupervised and doesn't have the equipment to do an operation Institutional racism is something complex and it's empirical. We need to be analyzing this particular case to see how it works there, right? But overall is how is it that we can think of this relation between individuals and organizations and the processes that exclude people within them that are a bit muddy, that are confusing of what is what is the exact line of command, say, or a chain, 
And of course, we might want to find who's guilty, but more important, we just want to stop it. We just need to just stop it, you know. <laughs> Whoever's guilty or whatever is guilty. So, um, but I think we need to understand that and we need new frameworks to understand that. I mean, the work in the UK do in that respect, of course, with the McPherson report and, you know, thinking about the, the police as institutionally racist and all the consequences from that work has been really important to do this. So it allowed me to take that framework and then see to what extent and with what differences, of course, it can be useful to think about this Mexican case I told you about. You know, it's very interesting to just try to understand how that phenomenon works, just to give a different angle, where the budget is allocated, who is given resources, who is not given resources. And all of that tells you how inequality works and what does it mean then for the people that are in the receiving end of this. So those are the kind of research projects I've been interested in. Okay, so I have a research agenda, but then I also have a more, you know, trying to, in the practice use different scenarios to help me think more about the big question on how we communicate these ideas to everyone how do we make clear how do we express in ways that can be listened because one thing is to do the the research another thing to publish it but another one is to find ways of communicating that people that are going to be very uncomfortable by the results or by, you know, are able to listen. And people, I'm not just talking about the people in power or white people or, you know, or the elites that might be uncomfortable. Also, and I think this is very important, the people that suffer through these experiences might not want to listen to these ideas of racism. Why? Because I think that you, when you recognize how you suffer racism, you have to locate yourself in the hierarchy and you have to suddenly look at all of your life, look at your group, look at your people and understand what has happened to you. And that is very hard and we should not underestimate it. That can make us deny it. That can make us actively say, that's just not for me. That's not happening to me. It might happen to other people, but not me, you know. Uh, that's not my story. I am a successful person. And, and I think that's why I'm very interested in how do we communicate these things effectively that take into consideration all the barriers that we put as people, as groups, and as families, and as society to not deal with the pain and the hurt and the mistreatment we are subjected and we subject others, right? So that's very important. And that's also part of what I think when, to, in order to eliminate inequality, to eliminate racism, we need to tap onto why is it hard to listen and to understand and give it space and not just kind of say to people, hey, 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 listen, when it's like, you know, there are lots of things at stake when we realize, oh, that's how I've been treated. That's how my family or my, you know, my relatives have thought of me. Or that's why that boyfriend didn't want to go out with me. Or that's why I didn't get the job. Or that's why they didn't give me painkillers in the hospital. Or that's why, 
I just don't have any opportunity here or there. That's why I can't migrate. That's why I don't have the right passport, That etc. No? That's why my water in my community is contaminated. And that is very important moment. Because once you see that, you can stop thinking it's your fault, that it has to do with you as a people or as an individual, and that it can, you can separate it from yourself. And then you can start maybe thinking about it and acting and finding solutions, innovate or find solutions to change that. But we need to do that process. And I want to my work to contribute to that moment of realization, say, you know, to first find the information, do the analysis, and then be able to communicate some ideas that can help people go through that process, if that makes sense. So for that, you know, I've been developing with um, other colleagues in Mexico. We've created an organization called COPERA. It's a collective, collective for the elimination of racism in Mexico. In Spanish, Colectivo para la Eliminación del Racismo in Mexico. So Coopera is it's great. <laughs> it's an organized, it's a collective. Uh, we are like around nine people and we've developed a variety of strategies of intervention. One of them, it's a workshop that has a particular methodology of how to communicate these ideas about race and racism alongside um, an awareness of the emotional effects of dealing with those things. So the workshop manages the emotional and the academic content and the kind of maybe more activist initiatives simultaneously. So we are talking about those things and we've developed a very successful methodology. We offer the workshop every year um, and people come and they really want to, you know, we've been doing this for years now, since 2010. And also now we've been asked to go to organizations and give that workshop to NGOs, to groups of activists, and also as well to some, you know, civil servants in the media with different, you know, journalists or, or media people, because uh, they all want to think about these things and bring them to their practice. So, for example, we, uh, the Museum of Textile in Mexico, one Museum of Textile, they ask us to go and give it to all their staff. And, you know, we were throwing them questions just to, and taking them through this process to make them think, okay, you are protectors of indigenous textiles. Uh, so what would it take for this organization so that in five years the leadership of this museum is, uh, is done by indigenous people? Oh, my God. It was just like we, they, they were just like... You know, was a, a, an interesting question to throw, to let them see all their feelings. And you say, well, you cannot be taking care of indigenous clothing and not bring in indigenous people. You know, that's kind of a very basic thing. And you can ask those kinds of questions. So the, what we've developed is a methodology and thinking about particular groups to help them go through what do they need to unlock or to blow apart so that they can move for a more, not just, it's not only equality and diversity, right? We're not thinking just on those terms. It's about rethink how can you develop an anti-racist agenda, be consequent and be more coherent. And that might mean that all of you need to go. 
<laughs> I'm just thinking, yeah, how, how would they react to that? Well, that's interesting. Or it might mean that you all need to just change jobs or you need to give space and open it up for other people to come. And how does that feel? So they can just start like screaming and that's okay. <laughs> the workshop allows for that. I mean, so the collective has developed a very deep understanding of how racism works in Mexico. What are the different groups that are are being, you know, interacting here? And what are the places where we get, you know, the blind spot that we don't see that racism is working there or that has nothing to do with us? And so that's a nice work. And I've learned a lot from that and from that methodology. And I've actually brought a lot of that learning to my teaching here at Cambridge. And I use some of those strategies to also work with my students saying, you know, these, all this knowledge that we learn here doesn't make any sense if you are not able to really, you know, cross it with your life and bring it down to you where you are. And because you need to care. I want you to care. You know, I don't want just to kind of get some more data. You can just go read a book. You can write it down. You can, you know, the data is everywhere. And we, I know a part of our job is to point to where the data is for students and bring it to them and package it nicely. But I also, I also want them to connect with them to be able to actually process that knowledge better and also to kind of almost release their imagination as much possible to think of new solutions and new possibilities and what they can do. That was Dr. Monica Moreno-Figueroa. And you can find out more about the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation by following us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube.